That's the last chapter in Second Chronicles is where we're going to be together tonight. And what we are going to look at are just two simple verses, verse 15 and 16, uh, here at the end of this incredible story of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, we will dance around a little bit throughout the chapter to get a sense of uh, what we're meant to see tonight, but let me get us going by just reading verse 15 and 16, and then I'll pray and ask for God's blessing, and we'll begin together. So here now, as God does speak to you through his powerful word. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the Lord's wrath rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we ask your help this night that we would not be like your people of old that stiffened their necks against your truth, that hardened their hearts against your word, but your spirit would open the same, soften our hearts, that we might receive this truth with meekness and love, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I sometimes wonder if it is the most fright-filled phrase that you could ever hear, as simple as it is. And the phrase is this, it's too late. You know, students, you may have heard a phrase like that from your teacher this semester. Perhaps you showed up in class one day with a past due assignment, hoping to turn it in, and your teacher looked at you and said simply, it's too late. Or kids, maybe you have been in a pattern of rebelling against your parents, perhaps dishonoring or disobeying in a particular way, and then discipline that you deserve is coming your way, and then at the very end, you express a sense of sorrow, and maybe your mom or your dad looks at you and says, it's too late. Or maybe you go to the doctor, and you receive a diagnosis of cancer, and you begin to look at your doctor and say, well, what if about this treatment? What about this medicine? What if we do this? And the doctor looks at you quite sympathetically and just simply begins to say, it's too late. Now, what would it be to hear your heavenly Father say to you, as the people in the southern kingdom of Judah heard way back then, it's too late. That's what we're going to see in our text tonight. And if you've had eyes to see as we've gone through these fall months engaged in this study of old gospel stories, I hope you've seen how what we're trying to do in, in simple compass is give you something of a sweep of Old Testament redemptive history. Uh, kids, it's almost as though we've kind of entered into this plane and we're flying over a forest that is the Old Testament. And every so often, you know, we just dive a little bit lower to stare at this rare tree, and then we rise back up and move along. And uh, what we saw early on when we began this series was the life of Moses after the tabernacle was constructed there at Mount Sinai. And as the narrative advanced, we eventually saw Joshua meandered through the time of the judges. Uh, we looked at Israel's first king, this man named Saul, who was the king after the people's heart, and spent a few weeks after, and the second king of Israel, the man named David, who was the king after God's own heart, and we, we notice not just the covenant that God made with David, but also David's fall into sin as he sinned against Uriah and his wife Bathsheba, and in recent weeks we've thought about these mighty prophets 
in the Old Testament, singularly powerful men like Elijah and Elisha. And what I want to do tonight, and Lord willing, next week, is give you what is basically the final chapter and the epilogue in the Old Testament, which is tonight our story of exile, and the Lord willing, next week, as we turn to something even alluded to at the end of chapter 36 in Second Chronicles, a story of a return with a man named Nehemiah. But what you want to see tonight in verse 15 and 16 is I'm not so interested in the what behind the exile of God's people. I mean, that's going to be simple enough. They're exiled from the promised land. I'm more interested tonight in the why behind the exile. Why was Israel exiled from the promised land, at least according to this passage? And our two verses give us two simple reasons. The first of which is this. They were exiled because they rejected God's goodness. Now look again at verse 15 at the beginning. It says, Yahweh, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers. So kids, when you see messengers there, you, you want to think about prophets. He persistently sent his prophets to his people. So I need to understand something about the spiritual context there of the southern kingdom and Judah to understand why prophets kept coming like an onslaught from heaven to speak God's word to God's people. Uh, to get a sense of that, just go to the first verse of chapter 36. Uh, you'll see we're told there by the chronicler that the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Okay, so kids, do you know anything? about this king named Josiah, a reference there in verse 1. Uh, you may know that Josiah was a good king, one of the few good kings that came along in Judah. He ascended to the throne when he was eight years old. It was Josiah that rediscovered the book of the law of God. It was Josiah that reinstituted the Passover in the southern kingdom of Judah. And it was Josiah that died on the battlefield against Egypt. And as so often happened with God's people, you have this long slide downward in their spirituality. Then you had this kind of, this one singular king and his righteousness and his pursuit of justice. Well, he would come and he would interrupt that slide. But part of the peculiar problem in Israel was more often than not that singularly righteous king. Well, he would have a child that would assume the throne after him and only continue the slide downward. And that's exactly what happens with this man, Jehoahaz. You see in verse 2 that he was 23 when he began to reign. He only lasted three months before the king of Egypt deposed him and took his brother. You'll notice verse 4, Eliakim, whom they recalled, I'm sorry, renamed Jehoiakim. And he was there for quite a bit longer. But his reign was one of evil. Look at verse 5 at the end. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's this Common phrase that punctuates far too many kings in the Old Testament about their spiritual character. Doesn't even tell us usually what they did. It's kind of Old Testament code for saying this was a king that was given to leading God's people in idolatry and into more injustice. And even the family line continues ever further. You'll notice that Jehoiakim, he eventually, his son Jehoiachin reigns in his place. But we're most interested in another one of Josiah's grandsons, this man named Zedekiah. Zedekiah is basically the last king there in Judah. He's a prominent contemporary of a man named Jeremiah, one of God's most faithful prophets. And look what the text tells us about the state of God's people under the reign of Zedekiah in verse 12 through 14. 
He did evil, what was he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God, and he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord, and he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. They polluted the Lord's house that he had made holy in Jerusalem. And this is why he kept sending prophets to his people. It polluted the Lord's house. A chosen special race, the royal priesthood, engaged in all of the abominations of the nations. Every form of idolatry, every form of injustice that shouldn't have even been spoken in the land, permeating the land. So he sent prophets one after another, to speak his word to his people. Our, our youngest son, Boston, is in this funny phase where he likes to tell jokes and share news, and sometimes they're combined with each other. And just yesterday, he stormed into the family room from one of the rooms where he was playing, and he said, I've got news, good news and bad news. It's this game he started to play where he tends to invent some news or at least relay some news that's meant to be somewhat serious, but it's often quite humorous, and he means to invite you uh, to wonder whether or not you want the good news first or, or the bad news first. And of course, the news that we find in, in verse 15, it's not humorous, but I want you to see that in verse 15, we actually have good news about the God whom we serve and the God whom we worship. And it's only against the goodness of that news that you understand the genuine horror and terror that belongs to verse 16. Because there's two things about the Lord's goodness that are mentioned. Notice verse 15. First, his goodness towards his people. Because the text says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers. Why did he send the prophet students? Number one, because he had compassion on his people. You could say it a little bit differently, couldn't you? Because he loved his people. Like a husband searches after a wife who wants nothing to do with him. So for centuries and centuries, prophet after prophet, God sent servants to his people because he had compassion on them. The Lord who is abounding in steadfast love and mercy and slow to anger years and years, generations and generations, pursuing his people because of his goodness towards them, but not just them. Notice even also the text ends in verse 15 by saying he had goodness towards his dwelling place, compassion on his temple. Now why do you think it is here that uh, the Lord has compassion, that he has goodness towards his dwelling place, towards his temple? Well, surely it's because it's there that he met with his people. It was there that he had a home in the nation of Israel, surrounding the people of Judah. It was there that he not only met with his people and communed with them, it was there that he forgave their sin, that he washed away their iniquities, that he renewed them in fellowship with them. Why did God keep sending prophets? Because he loved his people. and Because he loved being with his people. I suppose you could be in here today and in a very contemporary way, the Lord has consistently been sending his messengers into your life, 
Maybe it's been a church leader. Maybe it's been a friend. Maybe it's been a family member. Maybe it's been a church member consistently speaking God's truth to you, warning you away from a path of error or a road of danger on which you are traveling. And maybe you're like those people of old. You don't care that you're continuing on a dangerous path of destruction and devastation. Now, why were they exiled? Well, because they rejected God's goodness. Number two, verse 16, because they deserved God's justice. Verse 16 tells us again, but they kept mocking God's messengers, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets. If you notice verse 12, verse 21 and 22, Uh, What you'll see mentioned in this passage is that venerable prophet Jeremiah. What a wonderful book that so often mystifies far too many Christians. You'll begin to get a sense of why Jeremiah was so earnest in his message when you understand the destruction that belonged here, the pending destruction that belonged to the southern kingdom uh, of Judah. And, And Jeremiah was principally a prophet who was mocked, who was scorned. So you can think of a passage like Jeremiah chapter 19. Uh, the Lord sends Jeremiah to enact this prophetic parable. Uh, kids, that's just a way of saying he's going to do this kind of show-and-tell thing with the people of Israel. And God says, Jeremiah, I want you to take this earthen flask. So think of a jar of clay. And I want you to speak to the priests there in God's house, Pashur, and all the people there in Judah. And I want you to take them out, and I want you to speak to them. And in their presence, I want you to break the flask of earth. And I want you to tell them, In the exact same way, I'm going to break my people for their sin. So he goes and does it. And they begin to mock. They begin to jeer. They begin to scoff. So to such a degree, in the next chapter, Jeremiah complains to the Lord, I'm a laughingstock of all the people. All they do is mock. Can you imagine being taken out to the wilderness? A heaven-sent prophet of God taking this flask, shattering it in your face and saying, that's what God is getting ready to do to you. And instead of falling on your face and repenting, starting to jeer, starting to joke, starting to jest at this man named Jeremiah. Uh, But no doubt, any time that God's people don't respond to the realities of his word, it may not sound like joking, it may not sound like jesting, but a lack of response is nothing more than thinking that God is joking and jesting in the prophetic ministry of his loved ones. And so you'll see, they deserve his justice. The text continues, verse 16. We're despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. I suppose I could find one. I can't think of one tonight that in such short compass, so few words, contains such horror as the final phrase of verse 16. There was no remedy. In the original, there was no healing. Said a different way, they had reached the point of no return. 
And so exile comes. You'll notice that in verses 17 through 21. We don't need to recount it in any great detail. The Lord sends, of course, the Babylonians against his beloved people. They lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. Eventually they sack it. Eventually they burn it. And you'll see verse 20, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So it's a story of exile, one that the Lord had long promised, and one that finally reached a point of no remedy, of no return. You know, I was thinking earlier this week about the work of being a parent and As so many of you understand, the work of being a parent belongs to possessing a burden that many of your kids can't understand that you possess for them. But sometimes you try to get it across to them. You know, this happened recently with one of our children talking to them about something serious that was going on in their life. And uh, there are times, of course, when when you're talking with your children and the eyes begin to wander. But you realize, this is too serious. You have to look at me. And so I said, look at me. The child looked at me. Second half later, the eyes began to move. I said, no, look at me. Don't move your eyes until I am done talking. It is that serious. And I would tell you the exact same thing is true of this text tonight. In type and shadow, what we have here is the most serious realities that can belong to any person alive today. And I want you to see them both as we come to the end. The first of which is the certainty of judgment. The Lord's wrath rose against his people until there was no remedy. And what is the picture of exile but a picture of everlasting exile in type and shadow? Because throughout the Old Testament, what you would find out when God is warning his people about the the pending exile that's coming, the punishment for their sin, sometimes he'll use language about them being exiled from the land, the promised land. But there's a more central spiritual reality that lies at the problem of exile. It's, I will cast you out of my presence. And out of God's presence is the worst place any person can possibly be. And what is the nature of hell but everlasting separation from God's presence? Eternal exile for not listening to God's truth. Eternal punishment in the Babylonian horde because you won't listen to the love, the mercy, the slow to anger compassion of God. There's there's certainty in God's judgment. I wonder if in here tonight you, you know what it means to care for somebody much more than they seem to care for themselves. You know, maybe you lie up at night restless, turning over about a child, about a friend who has rejected the faith that they once professed a person that you would reach out and and care more than they could ever possibly imagine. You would care for them if they would but listen to you, if they would but receive from you. 
Or perhaps there's even someone in your own life that you wonder. Maybe they are past the point of, of no return. I want you to see here even how Second Chronicles 36 shows us good news against the backdrop of the exile's bad news. Because there's certainty of judgment. But in a way that we don't want to miss tonight, there's the mercy of Jesus Christ at the very end of the chapter. Because what's interesting, if you ever uh, had time this week, you could go through, and I know it would take you a while, it's a long book, but you could read through some major sections of the prophet Jeremiah, uh, three times mentioned in Second Chronicles 36. And you could get to chapter 33. This is uh, Jeremiah's prophecy to the people. It's a prophecy of hope. And it's just before he tells Zedekiah that you're going to die in Babylon. But he says this, Behold, the days are coming. Declares the Lord. It's the people in exile, he says. When I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah in those days, at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord our righteousness. There's someone coming that's going to lead an exodus from the exile, is what Jeremiah says. A righteous branch. Now we know his name. It's Jesus Christ. And I want you to see the welcome at the end of this passage. Look in Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 23. Something, Lord willing, we'll look at more next week. Cyrus, king of Persia, declares, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he who has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, whoever is among you, all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him, let him go up. There's certainty of judgment. And there's mercy in Jesus. An exodus from the exile, let him go up. It's quite striking if you ever pulled out the order of the Jewish Old Testament. You would realize it's not ordered in the way our English Bible is. Uh, the Jewish Old Testament, quite particularly and certainly quite specifically, has Second Chronicles as the last book. Uh, it means to tell us something about the story of the southern kingdom of Judah. It means to tell us something about the Davidic king because, of course, they were looking for the Davidic messianic hope to come. But why it's interesting is is the Jewish Old Testament ends almost with a sentence that isn't complete. As you see it again, the very final phrase is actually just one word in Hebrew in 2 Chronicles 36, let him go up. It's almost this free offer of the gospel ending the Old Testament for Jews. Let anyone who calls the Lord their God go up to the promised land. Let anyone who calls the Lord their God, let him go up let her go up to enjoy the free access in God's presence. Let him go up who knows Jesus Christ. Let him go up who knows his forgiveness. Let him go up who knows he took the judgment that you deserve. Let him go up before it's too late. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would, in your mercy and grace, 
apply your word of truth to us this night, that we would know what it means, perhaps for the first time, perhaps even for the first time in a long time, to go up with fullness of faith, trusting in the confidence that we have, access to your very throne through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.